From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with constitutional law professor Michael Curtis about the First Amendment Defense Act. And following that conversation, Joel Blackwell will join us to discuss his recent book, Keep on Voting After the Election. That's coming up on The Public Morality. to the public morality. The Constitution prohibits Congress from establishing a religion. It it is also forbidden to enact laws that would impede the free exercise of one's faith tradition. But as with most things in the nation's guiding decree, the simplicity of the words can belie the complexity of the meaning, especially when citizens periodically ask, what does that mean? The First Amendment Defense Act would bar the federal government from punishing people or institutions that support marriage exclusively as the union of one man and one woman. And if passed by Congress, it would also potentially place the First Amendment's Religious Freedom Clause in tension with the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, a constitutional conundrum. Joining me to discuss the First Amendment Defense Act is Michael Curtis. Curtis is a constitutional law professor at Wake Forest School of Law. Professor Michael Curtis, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Mm -hmm. Let's begin by having you offer a a distillation of the freedom of religion clause that's in the First Amendment. (laughs) Yes. See, we start with the easy questions first, sir. That's how it works here. That's right. (laughs) Well, there... uh, there are two aspects of the uh, religion clause in the First Amendment. One is the free exercise clause, and the other is the guarantee against establishment of religion. And there's some potential tension between the two. The conventional view uh, for much of the court's history has been that the free exercise deals with the freedom to express religious views, the freedom to, to um, you know, go to church and that sort of thing. Generally speaking, with some exceptions, it didn't include freedom not to obey generally applicable laws. Uh, so, for instance, I'm a member of New Garden Friends Meeting. Some members of my meeting object to the federal tax system because it funds the military, and they object to funding the military. But they don't get a freedom of religion exemption from the tax law um, because it's contrary to a conscientious religious belief. So that, you know, that has been the view of a closely divided court uh, for some time. There's now there's now a movement in the other direction, and it's always been there to some extent. And the movement is basically well. 
we ought to be able to have freedom for acts as well as religious expression and and uh, and that's a potential problem. Thomas Jefferson in his great bill on religious freedom uh, in the Virginia legislature uh, said the freedom was absolute in terms of being able to express and adhere to religious views, but as to acts, it was time enough for the government to act when the acts interfered with, you know, basic uh, basic functions of the state. But it's it's not a simple division, as you know. Well, I and see, I, I have another easy question for you. Uh, okay. All right. So now, would you do likewise uh, with the non-controversial Fourteenth Amendment? I'm being very sarcastic when I say non-controversial, of course. Yeah, well, the 14th Amendment, uh, basically, in Section 1, has a couple of basic provisions. Uh, One is uh, birthright citizenship. All people born in the country are citizens of the United States and of the state they reside in. And one aspect of birthright citizenship is the right to be treated equally when you go from one state to another. Uh, then there's, in the, in the 14th Amendment, there's the Equal Protection Clause, a guarantee basically against state-sponsored state action that discriminates against people. Uh, and there's the Due Process Clause, which is interpreted as protecting various liberties as well as procedural due process. So... So the guarantees of the Bill of Rights, as the Supreme Court has interpreted it, apply to the states under the Due Process Clause. And, and due process was something that they carried forward from the Fifth, it was also uh, in the Fifth Amendment, is that correct? In the Fifth Amendment, and as the Court interprets the Fifth Amendment now, which limits the federal government, it has an equal protection component that is much like the thrust of the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. And that is really consistent with the view of some old-time Republicans uh, that the Fifth Amendment, even before the Fourteenth Amendment, guaranteed equal protection of the laws. And uh, with regard to the Fourteenth Amendment, sir, how does the doctrine of incorporation factor? Well, the doctrine of incorporation is the idea that the guarantees of the Bill of Rights are among the liberties, or the other view would be the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And the 14th Amendment says that no state can abridge these things. So the 14th Amendment, in addition to its guarantee of equal protection, says states can't abridge the liberties of citizens of the United States, or uh, if you look at the way the framers thought of it to start with, or many of them, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, and these included, among other basic liberties, the liberties in the Bill of Rights. One of the big problems before the Civil War was that the right to free speech and actually uh, free exercise of religion in terms of speaking on religious topics was uh, suppressed in the South for people who were opposed to slavery. Uh, and Republicans couldn't campaign in the South before the Civil War. Um, so, so one purpose of the 14th Amendment was to nationalize 
the civil liberties and the Bill of Rights. The Supreme Court took a long time getting around to doing that, but it eventually did. Now, is incorporation something that is uh, widely accepted, or is it selectively? How, how has it been applied since the ratification of the 14th Amendment? Yes, well, initially, um, the court rejected any application over the dissent of some of the justices, like Justice John Marshall Harlan I. Uh, eventually, it began to selectively apply some of these guarantees to the states. And by now, virtually all of the guarantees have been applied to the uh, states. Some have not yet. The right to civil jury trial has not yet been applied and so on. But grand jury indictment has not yet been applied. But nearly all the rest. I'll stay with this for one more question. Would that be, uh, would a good example of incorporation uh, not being applied and then being applied would be the difference between, say, Plessy v. Ferguson in 1893 and Brown versus Board of Education 1954. Would that be the difference? Well, that would be an example of the Equal Protection Clause okay. and the understanding of the Equal Protection Clause. So Plessy's understanding was that equal protection and due process didn't prevent segregation based on race. And Brown's understanding in Loving versus Virginia, the interracial marriage case, was that it did. It, uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment adhered to certain principles. And they thought of due process and equal protection as including a principle against irrational discriminations or caste systems. To start with, not everybody understood that racial segregation promoted a caste system. But by the time of Brown versus Board of Education and Loving versus Virginia, it was pretty clear, and it was a caste system that affected all sorts of things, uh, rights in all sorts of directions, including the criminal justice system. And so now we get to some more easy questions. Um, so so we talk about um, this proposed legislation, the First Amendment Defense Act. Do you see a potential conflict between the First and Fourteenth Amendments should that be legislation become law? Yeah, well, I understand it's being proposed for states as well as being proposed for the federal government. The 14th Amendment deals directly with states and, of course, the, uh, the Due Process Clause with its equal protection component uh, deals with the federal government. Yeah, is there a tension? Yes, there's a, a, a big tension. Um, I think one thing to note is that we think of the courts as being, you know, the creators and guarantors of our liberties and that sort of thing. But to a great extent, progress on civil rights and racial equality came from the Congress. In the Civil Rights Bill of, eight, of 1964 that outlawed discrimination in public accommodations, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and, and others. Um, the... Uh, the biggest tension of this bill is, is against the principle of e equal treatment that was accepted in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the question is basically, should that principle apply to, uh, to people who are gay? The, uh, and if you have a law like this that says basically you can withhold any 
uh, you, know, you can't withhold any federal grant, contract, subcontract, cooperative agreement, and so on, because the people object, the people getting the grant object to gay people because they have gay sex or object to gay people who are married. This is, this is problematic because it would deal with all sorts of government action. So the government often acts through contracts with individuals. You know, they may hire corporations to do work for the government. They may, uh, they may have other groups that uh, they choose to carry on government functions, such as, for instance, gas, private prisons these days. But, uh, but as to all of those, it seems to me the suggestion is that if the contractor or, well, let me back up. Often they're, they're not, uh, there's not a federal law like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that protects gay people against discrimination in housing, employment, uh, and, and so on. There are, there are guarantees like that act, expansions of that principle of equality in a number of states, and then a number of states like North Carolina don't have those guarantees. One thing governments do is in their contracts, they make provisions that you can't discriminate against people on certain irrational caste-based, uh, in certain irrational caste-based ways. For example, often it would say you can't discriminate based on race, religion, national origin, sex, and that sort of thing. So, and of course, if you're a government contractor, you're also bound by the Civil Rights Act of 64. But So that can be expanded by government rules saying, okay, we also protect gay people against being denied employment by government contractors or uh, denied, you know, any of these other benefits that might be privately provided uh, to some extent under government aegis or government cooperation. Um, I guess that's, that's the big issue, because as, as the federal government has not expanded protection to gay people, and indeed, you know, hasn't been able to do much of anything because it's so deadlocked, um, the states, at least some states, have expanded these protections. And other states have said, you know, we don't want this sort of protection. If we have a, if we have a contractor who we hire to do state business, we don't want any understanding that they can't discriminate against gay people because they have uh, gay sex or they can't, uh, presumably, or, or that, you know, they can't discriminate against gay people because they're married. Actually, it's a bigger problem than it used to be because there was no visual detection device for gayness. So ordinarily you couldn't just look at somebody and say, well, gee, this is a gay person. Aha, I will discriminate against them. <laughs> but now with gay marriage, you know, it's, it's out in the open. And also with gay people coming out of the closet, it's, it's much more in the open. Mm-hmm. And it's really connected with another basic civil liberty. And that basic civil liberty is the right of speech and association. So to the extent that discrimination keeps people from feeling safe in expressing their views on issues like uh, homosexuality 
or gay marriage or whatever, it has a chilling effect on speech and association. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with constitutional law professor Michael Curtis at uh, Wake Forest School of Law regarding the proposed First Amendment Defense Act. So, Professor Curtis, in the context of the First, uh, First Amendment Defense Act, what would exercising one's religion mean? Well, the, the Act says that it, it, the First Amendment Defense Act says it includes both uh, belief and uh, action. Um, the uh, discriminatory action uh, is uh, discriminating against a person because of beliefs or convictions, uh, including federal government action, to alter. But as I read it, it prohibits also, I'm looking for the, uh, prohibits the federal government from taking discriminatory action against a person on the basis such person believes or acts in accordance with a religious belief. So if you have a, a federal contract and there is a, a, uh, a regulation saying that you can't discriminate based on, against people based on uh, uh, gayness, for instance, then the effect of this would be all you have to do is play your trump card of, well, this is my religious view. Therefore, I get to discriminate against gay people because the Act particularly talks about marriage or uh, sex outside of heterosexual marriage. That sort of uh, runs counter-historically because it seems to me uh, that this expands the notion of religious freedom in that it becomes something that goes with me into the public square uh, with my ability to use your word, trump those who don't share my beliefs. Yes, or whose, whose lifestyle doesn't meet with my approval. Right. Yes, abs absolutely, that's, that's what it does. And that is, it's also dubious, I think, under the Equal Protection Clause and the Birthright Citizenship Equality thing, because this selects out for discrimination by these people, for protected discrimination, just gays who are married, or gays. It doesn't, you know, if there is this right to uh, to uh, believe or act in accordance with your belief, religious belief, and discriminate, well then, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it also cover all sorts of other things? Discriminating against people because they're Buddhists, or discriminating against people because they're the wrong color or whatever. Seems to me really the, the model for understanding this issue should be the, should be the uh, Civil Rights Act and its, its decision to outlaw discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, or sex. And the same principles ought to apply to protecting gay people. And there's some, some areas where it could be reasonable to make some exceptions. But in terms of this, this protects any corporation um, where the corporation announces, well, this is our religious belief, and therefore we don't hire gay people, or we don't, uh, we don't hire gay people who are married, or we don't allow gay people who are married to have uh, 
their spouse covered under the health insurance policy or whatever. And couldn't you also extend that belief to, say, uh, single mothers or, or, or unwed heterosexual couples? If you, if you have that belief, couldn't that also be extended to, to those parties as well? Yes. Uh, I'm looking at this. Uh, a religious belief or moral conviction that marriage should be recognized as a union of one man and one woman, or sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. Yes, yeah, so it does seem to me uh, you could discriminate against a woman who had a child out of wedlock, for instance. You could, under this, you could discriminate against heterosexual couples who were uh, living together but not married. Um, and so on. So yes, it's I mean, it potentially gives all sorts of opportunities for discrimination. And it does not seem to me, although obviously one of the focuses of it, or animus, is, uh, is gays. It doesn't seem to be limited to gays. Well, that's sort of the, the slippery slope. It, 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 on paper, it, it, it's focused on one group. But once you open up that Pandora's box, I mean, who knows where it could go based on whatever one's particular interpretation of, of, of uh, religion might be. Yeah, well, uh, the in, one interpretation, the access you can have is that marriage is or should be recognized as a union of one man and one woman, and sexual relations are properly reserved to such marriage. So all the, you know, the things I talked about for heterosexuals are not a slippery slope. Right. <laughs> They've... They have uh, they've incorporated that slope into the act. <laughs> uh, well, you, you mentioned corporations, and I, I, I want to jump to that for a moment, if I could, because the, the the act specifically says it defines a person as any person, regardless of religious affiliation, including corporations and other entities, regardless of for-profit or non-profit status. Now, that seems to me to, to hearken on the language found in rulings like, say, Citizens United and the Hobby Lobby decision. Well, it is true that corporations have been, uh, have give, have been given, say, and Citizens United have been given, been given broad free speech rights that they did not have historically in this country um, until the uh, Supreme Court decided Citizens United. Um, and... Uh, and Hobby Lobby basically holds that a corporation, at least a closely held corporation, can have a right to free exercise of religion and so on. The question is what that'll mean is is obviously going to be going to be coming up. But yes, so in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for instance, the idea was that of course you could reach these uh, corporations in the public that entered the public commercial sphere and dealt with the public and so on. You could say there's certain things you can't do. Historically, uh, how has the court negotiated any potential conflicts that may arise between amendments? Like we, we talked about the First Amendment. Maybe this might be some tension created with the 14th Amendment. Can you think of any cases where the courts had to negotiate something of that manner? How they negotiate... When there's uh, conflict maybe between two competing amendments. Or two competing interpretations. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, yes, you're right. Yeah, interpretation, yeah. yes. Yeah, well, uh, 
I guess the First Amendment guarantee of free speech and extending it to corporations, that was sort of a conflict within Mm -hmm. that amendment. There's, um, for example, if you had a statute that said ministers can't preach against uh, homosexuality or sex out of marriage or that sort of thing, that would be a clear conflict with the uh, with the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. There would also be an equality interest in not having people express anti-equality ideas. But it's and in Europe, they you know they're much more likely to have that approach. Maybe outside the minister context, but for ordinary people. But in this country, the First Amendment is pretty clear. You can express ideas that many would find reprehensible and bigoted um, and uh, and equal protection does not keep you from doing it one thing equal protection of course is uh, is a limit on the action of states and when individuals are speaking they are not state actors but yeah, but if if you had the legislature saying, well, we're going to enforce equality and we're going to enforce equality by shutting up people who are critics of equality, um, passing laws against, you know, defamation of a group or that sort of thing, there you'd have that sort of tension. You had it in uh, the case of Boharness versus Illinois, which was uh, a case about group libel. And initially, the court's action was to hold that group libel is something the states can prohibit. So they could prohibit uh, things that statements that show lack of virtue in any uh, you know group of people based on religion and similar race and similar things. I think later decisions of the court have. Uh, have moved away from that, but Bo Harness is still on the books, and is it's an example of a tension between equal protection and uh, and free speech. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 being facetious here, but it seems to me one of the troubling aspects for me as I as I read this legislation, that I'll have you respond. Is it is it if uh, Acme Donut House, um, if the proprietor, and we'll call him Mr. Wiley Coyote. If he identifies as Christian, then he is covered under this potential First Amendment Defense Act. Yeah, let me. Um, um, yeah, but it's it's not just Christians, although. Well, I'm, I'm using that as an example, but yes, yes. Yeah, um, uh, Buddhists or Muslims right. or all sorts of other religions could. Uh, if you know they the person owns or controls the corporation they could they could say well you know this this violates my religious beliefs and then that right there going back to your pre- previous answer that really flies that sort of thinking at least flies in the face of the civil rights act of 1964 it does and it flies in the face of this broad tendency of american law and constitutional law to extend the protections of the law and equality to more and more groups of people. Um, First, uh, men who uh, didn't have a certain amount of property were still allowed to vote. And then 
black people were given the right to vote and equal protection, and then women, and yeah, and yeah. So it it goes against the sort of the expanding uh, ethical aspirations that are revealed in the Constitution. Well, and if you, if and if you the timeline you just offered. Um, starts, what, 1788, and women didn't vote till 1920. So sometimes those extensions take a while. Boy, that's the truth, yes, <laughs> for sure, yes. Um, but it seems to me, just you know, given our history, that uh, whenever you have legislation that opens the door, I'm not going to even say this legislation does it, but it opens the door to discrimination. That's never been a good model for this country. Well, I'd say this this legislation, now this is my view, I understand, and you're not expressing this view. My view is that this legislation does open the door in certain areas for discrimination. It opens the door in areas where you would have either a... um, state law, which could be preempted by a federal law, not this particular one, but but one like it. Or you could have state laws, which, uh, which basically deny the ability of people in the state to get the benefit of the equality guarantees of the state constitution or the state law. So, so in that sense, I, I think if you go back to the... Um but note this comes up for people like federal contractors. Federal contractors get to discriminate in all these ways if they say it's religiously motivated. Yeah, well, that, that that sounds like a very dangerous precedent, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't I don't like it because it's it's a basic assault on dignity. Segregation was an assault on dignity. Um, and had all sorts of collateral effects. The idea that you can discriminate against uh, heterosexuals who are unmarried but living together and having sex, or heterosexuals where you know the the woman had a child out of wedlock, or gay people, um, that you can discriminate against all these people. Uh, based on you saying, well, this is my religious view, and my religious view trumps with reference to federal contracts and that sort of thing. Any, uh, but, but hasn't the any co- I'm gonna, sir, order ha- that would have protected the people? But hasn't the court, um, I say at least post-1868 uh, with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, hasn't the court... Uh, gradually move toward, if there's an issue between equality and whatever the other thing was, in this case, say, discrimination equality, hasn't the court tended to uh, side with, on the equality piece? I mean, I know it took some, I mean, grudgingly, but hasn't that been a, cons- uh, a, a rather recent consistency? Well, with reference, say, to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the courts did not recognize that you could say, gee, I have religious views, therefore I get to discriminate against people based on color or religion or national origin or that sort of thing, and who I serve in my covered uh, commercial establishments. Um, so, yes, to that extent, that's, that's right. Um, 
You know, it seems to me, and in a larger sense, um, in the few minutes we have left, it seems to me that part of the, I guess, part of the struggle, because I understand that this legislation is, is, is in, in many regards, in response to uh, Obergefell versus, I think, Obergefell versus Hodges. That, gay marriage. Yeah, but even gay. before that, you had, you know, things. Yeah. And and remember that, I'm going to go back to Loving versus Virginia sure. for a moment, the interracial 60, marriage. 67, case. right? The big objection to that was a religious objection. And the big objection to integration, one big objection was a religious objection. So historians have done all sorts of really uh, detailed and interesting work on the idea was if you have integration of schools and so on, then the next thing you'll do is have interracial marriage. And if you have interracial marriage, this is against God's word. And uh, that was the reason, you know, for instance, uh, a historian found most people who are writing the governor of Virginia to oppose integration would cite. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, you know, certain sexual relations, uh, you, you should be able to discriminate against people based on certain sexual relations or potential sexual relations is, is not a brand new idea. Well, in your... In your uh context uh, as a constitutional law professor, do, do, when you hear um, uh, constitutional uh, Supreme Court decisions debated, isn't there, too, in your view, is there too much emphasis placed on the actual outcome and not enough on the constitutional concept in which the ruling was handed down? I, I, yeah, I think too often people don't focus on the basic principle behind the constitutional guarantee. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely so. And I think this is troubling because this picks out a particular group of people to be denied what otherwise might be the protection of federal administrative rules, uh, protecting them from discrimination and deprives them of that protection for anybody who says I'm doing it because of my religion, anybody who's a contractor or subcontractor or whatever. Professor Michael Curtis, Wake Forest School of Law. Sir, I, I really thank you for being on the public morality today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it, it, was, it was definitely our pleasure, sir. Thank you. That was Professor Michael Curtis. Stay tuned as I discuss ways for the average citizen to stay engaged in the political process after the election with author Joel Blackwell. Welcome back. It is easy to assume that elections represent the pinnacle of our civic responsibility. But my next guest, Joel Blackwell, offers that it's just the beginning. In his recent book, Keep on Voting After the Election, Blackwell offers tangible applications to maximize one's civic responsibility. I interviewed Blackwell back in January 2017. Joel Blackwell, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, it's good to be with you, Byron. Well, let's dive right in. Um, the, the, the title of your book, To the Observer, might sound oxymoronic. Keep on voting after the election. 
That sounds like something. <laughs> that sounds like something they used to do in Chicago during Prohibition. So, <laughs> explain, explain. <laughs> well, uh, okay. My point is this: first of all, I, I I want everyone to vote. Voting is important, but the fact of the matter is. In most elections, and this is, is particularly true in North Carolina nowadays with the gerrymandered districts, uh, the vote you cast uh, isn't likely to make much difference because the, re- the incumbent is going to be reelected. Now, there are exceptions, but that's usually the case, state yeah, and federal. Explain that. And the explain, other ch- explain why you say that they're going to most likely be elected. Talk a little bit about that. I'm sorry to... Well, no, no. Um, um, Historically, more than 90 percent of of incumbents are reelected. Once you get in office, you have enormous advantages. And, you know, most politicians are trying to do a good job. Most voters will go in and vote for the incumbent. Uh, That's just a a political fact. And as I say, statistically, it's true. Far north of 90 percent of incumbents are reelected as long as they want to stay in office and legally can. Okay. Okay. And so the title of your book after the election? Well, yes. My point there is, uh, first of all, yes, please vote. But Election Day is like the day you hire a new employee. And like any good supervisor, you need to give them a job description, tell them how to do their job, and monitor how they do their job. Now, most voters or most people, if they vote at all, after Election Day, their attention turns away. You know, they, they've got family, they've got jobs they're concerned with. Savvy people who are truly trying to impact public policy uh, do what I call they keep on voting, and that is they establish contact with their elected office holders and hold their feet to the fire by telling them what they want to happen. And voters who do this can be very powerful uh, because politicians, particularly in a state legislature and the United States House of Representatives, are always thinking about the next election. So their major goal in life is to make as many people as happy as possible. Uh, And so if you are contacting the person you can vote for, they truly want to hear from you. And many times you will be surprised uh, at the reception you get and the fact that they may be willing to help you. Um, Let's talk about uh, how you actually developed this book and um, just the process you went to to, to develop the book. And would you include in your answer some of your background? So I want to put it all together for our listeners, if you would. Okay, sure. I was um, an editor and a writer at the Charlotte Observer for many years and uh, bailed out of newspapers just in the nick of time in the mid-80s, started a business uh, in crisis management. And in the course of that, I was told by one of my clients that the biggest problem they have, and this was a nursing home group, said the biggest problem we have is the legislature. Do you know how to get our directors of nursing homes to contact their state senators and state representatives? And uh, like many businesses, nursing homes have a lot of political issues. They're concerned about Medicaid, things like that. So I said to the guy, I have no idea. I, I have no idea how to get people to talk to politicians. But as I traveled around the country, I started running focus groups, and I would ask basically three questions. 
why don't you write letters, make phone calls, and give money to politicians? And from that focus group work, I came to understand the major objections people have and the reason so many people do not talk to politicians, so few do. And in fact, if you stop 10 people on the street and say, have you talked to your state senator in the last year, they won't even know what you're talking about. However, the small number of people who do get mobilized, build a relationship and maintain contact with a state senator or representative or a member of the United States Congress, those people have disproportionate power because there are so few of them. So uh, once I identified the reasons that people don't do this, and it turned out to be some things fairly obvious, like, I don't know what to say, or, and, and this one's very powerful, they don't want to listen to me. There is a pervasive feeling of cynicism among the American public that politicians don't give a rat's patootie about what ordinary people think. Now, in fact, I have interviewed people and talked to people and talked to lobbyists and talked to politicians in 47 states. And the opposite is true. Politicians, when they hear from voters in their district, are always going to at least listen. They may disagree, but they will at least listen. And uh, in my book, I quote a, a state senator from New York State who I asked this question one time. I said, why is it so important to you to come out of a committee meeting that you were chairing and come back and talk to one constituent from your district. And he laughed and said, the last thing I want is somebody going back home and telling all their friends that I'm too big for my britches and wouldn't talk to a constituent. So uh, my point is that if you uh, accept the idea that election day is like the day you hire your new employee and you need to supervise them, the way you do that is you pick up the phone, call them, you uh, email them, you write a letter, and, and all of these have different impacts. And this is what I uh, discuss in my books and seminars and training is what's going to work best. But basically, talking to the person you can vote for is very powerful. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Joel Blackwell, author of Keep On Voting After the Election. Uh, now that we've established that you are not talking about uh, regurgitating uh, Chicago politics of the 20s, uh, <laughs> uh, the, there is, uh, seriously though, there's, there's a, a belief that's widely held by a number of people that, that the amount of money in politics essentially drowns out the impact uh, of the average voter. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, it is true that money is important, and I encourage people to give money to uh, political campaigns uh, and to support candidates who share their values. That is important. And there are a number of things to be said about this. Think about it this way. Um, we pay for jurors. We pay for judges. We pay for firefighters. We do not give tax money to help anybody run for office. The people who run for office are basically like free enterprise, capitalist entrepreneurs. They have to go out into the marketplace and raise money. This keeps a lot of good people from running for office because, you know, in North Carolina, it can take a minimum of $200,000, $300,000 to run an effective campaign uh, that's contested. 
who has that kind of money? Also, you know, who has the time uh, and the willingness to subject themselves to a campaign? So money is indeed very important. However, I've interviewed a great many politicians and a great many lobbyists and a great many volunteer advocates who all say that grassroots action from the district is one of the things that can overcome the influence of powerful outside money. No politician wants to fight the people in his or her district. And the other thing is many times Whatever your interest is, whether it's the environment, whether it's civil rights, whether it's justice, whatever your interest is, there may not be any powerful corporate money working against that. And and even if there is, I have seen, and I'll give you one good example, I was part of a big fight back in the 90s with the credit union movement against the big banks. Now, there's nobody with more money and power and savvy than big banks. Credit unions, much smaller, much less money, but they beat back the big banks and won the right to serve larger geographic areas than they had previously had because they mounted a grassroots operation. And there are other examples of that. Um, For example, um, you see movements which have gained uh, political power, like women's movements, uh, the gay rights movement, um, very, very quickly in the course of history, has achieved enormous political clout for their uh, issues. So um, my thesis, my belief, and I think the evidence shows that mobilizing grassroots of people to contact the elected officials they can vote for can overcome money. Stay with that theme for a moment of of, of grassroots, because one of the things you offer in your book is, is, um, is that the most powerful influence uh influencer in congress is that that face-to-face meeting and i can see i can hear so many you know just average citizens however defined uh would come back to you and say well see that that's the problem i can't get a face-to-face meeting you know with my congressman but you know some big agriculture uh firm or some bank they can and your response is Well, um, it is true that members of Congress and state legislatures are very busy, and they have to be selective who they talk to. And what I advise people to do is several things. First of all, uh, if you're talking to a state, if you want to talk to a state legislator, you call their office and ask when they're going to be in the district and say, I'd like to have a cup of coffee with my representative. And you can probably get that. The challenge is, what do you have to say? Not a lot of people have very concrete, specific things that they want to talk about. For example, people will say, well, I'm for education. Well, what does that mean? You want smaller class sizes? You want a different way to select the books? I mean, what is it you're really after? And what um, elected officials need are some specifics. Well, what I advise people to do is whatever your cause, whatever your values, there's probably an organization already working on it. And let's just admit it's a special interest organization, right? That's good. That's the way our democracy works. So you need to find an organization that will help you articulate what you care about and then also uh, expand the participation and help you get that meeting. But by and large, anybody with something to say can ultimately, if they stick to it, 
get in front of uh, a state senator or representative and certainly get in front of a staff member for a member of Congress. And what uh, I tell people, and I've done many, many lobby days. You know, a lobby day is when people come to the Capitol to lobby. I've worked a lot of those um, in Raleigh and in 46 other state capitals and in Washington, D.C. And particularly in Washington, if you get to a staff member who specializes in your issue, that may be the most powerful moment. Because if you persuade them that enough people back in the district care about your issue, they're going to go to this member of Congress and say, you need to listen to these people. You need to think about what you're going to do, because this is coming up from the district. And just today, just today, we saw a perfect example of this when the Republican caucus in a secret meeting uh, walks out and announces they're going to do away with the ethics system in the House of Representatives. There was a firestorm of people calling and writing and phoning uh, Washington, D.C., and they backed down. And that's a very good example of how this can happen. But my point is, first of all, if you persist and have something to say, you can get a FaceTime with the person you can vote for. The second thing is, sometimes getting to their staff is just as effective. And I advise people in my training seminars to treat staff as though they were the elected official because they're the people doing the grunt work of preparing position papers and things like that. So um, that's generally the answer that I give to that question. And depending on the issue, uh, the staff could very well know as much, if not more, about the particular issue than the elected official because that's their focus. Would, Would that be fair? Exactly right. Members of Congress um, look at the the four or five thousand bills that come up uh, uh, in the in the legislature or in the Congress, and they can't know about them all. And so um, now they don't have much staff in the North Carolina legislature, but they are counting on that staff, and they're counting on people in state agencies to provide them with information. So that's another thing, depending on, let's say, you're working on some environmental regulation or some business regulation or something about the criminal justice system in North Carolina, you might want to go to some of the agencies and work through them and help them understand what you would like to have happen as well. So there's a lot of doors to go through and represent your issue, whatever that is. And being part of some organization is going to leverage your power, amplify your voice, and also help you get a focus. So I encourage people to find an organization that's already working on your issue and work with them. And uh, they will normally have some professional staff to also guide you through the process. Um, I'm I'm, I'm a, a great believer that our democracy works for the people who work it. Joel, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. And now for my closing remarks. One of my favorite descriptions of 21st century American public discourse is what I like to call shirts and skins politics. In men's pickup basketball, teams are delineated by those wearing shirts and those without. So it would stand to reason that a member of the shirts team would only pass the other members wearing shirts. That makes sense for pickup basketball, but it is inadequate for our politics. We recently got a glimpse of what can happen when shirts and skins politics goes awry. After President Trump's speech uh, to a joint session of Congress, 
CNN liberal pundit Van Jones praised a portion of the president's speech. Jones, who has been a frequent critic of the president, said Trump's tribute to Navy SEAL Ryan Owens, who died in a raid in Yemen, was, quote, one of the extraordinary moments you've ever seen in American politics, period. And that it was a moment Trump became president of the United States. For those who've taken a blood oath that Trump is not their president, Jones's words were tantamount to heresy, which would have some questioning Jones' progressive bona fides. In the final analysis, it's not Van Jones, but us. We accept talking heads, I would include myself, as celebrity ventriloquists. As long as they speak for us, they're fine. But when they go off script, we're shocked and disappointed. Our collective standards must be higher. And that certainly won't get us to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.